0: Taking a deep breath, Saoirse intertwined her fingers in her lap, fixed her eyes on his face and began. You know of the sickness that has afflicted Peter Morton and how the Reverend and others are attributing it to witchcraft. We had some discussion about this the day Peter fell ill. Aidan nodded. I do. And I hear they've found someone to blame for casting the spell that bewitched the lad. It was hard to keep the sarcasm out of his voice. Aidan had no time for fear-mongering or those who talked of witchcraft. He'd seen it when he fought on the continent and witnessed the consequences, how people used such accusations to rid themselves of those they considered nuisances or from whom they wished to acquire something, mostly property and mostly from women. Women who dared to assert authority or challenge those who had it. That this kind of reckoning had come to Pittenweem disturbed him more than he liked to admit. It wasn't the first time practitioners of witchcraft had been found in the town. The last time anyone was declared guilty, and that had been decades ago according to the men in the tavern the night before, the outcome had been catastrophic. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.
1: Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Emma Harvey. Tasmanian writer Karen Brooks is the best-selling author of 13 books, including historical fiction blockbusters The Brewer's Tale, The Locksmith's Daughter, and The Chocolate Maker's Wife. She has written fantasy novels for children and young adults, as well as several short stories and non-fiction works, and is an award-winning speaker and academic. Karen's latest endeavour is The Darkest Shore, a stunning historical narrative based on the true story of an 18th century witch hunt in a Scottish fishing village. Karen, welcome.
0: Hi, Emma. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Karen, as we just heard, you've had quite a diverse and fulfilling career as a writer, but before becoming an author and academic, you were in fact an army officer in the Royal Australian Army Survey Corps for five years. Is that right?
0: Yes, that's absolutely right. I was a <laughs> wow. cartographer.
1: What was that like? What was it like? Oh, look, Um,
0: now reflecting back on it, it was an amazing period of time. And I was 19 when I was commissioned after a year's training and uh, I was from Sydney and I was sent to a little country town in Victoria, Bendigo, not so little now, but I remember being most despondent. I was leaving the city and <laughs> there I was at 19 years old in a regiment of 300 men and a few women and put in charge of a, a, a troop, which is probably about 30 people. They were my responsibility, plus I was also the most senior female there. So suddenly all these women um, I was responsible for too. And, yeah, it was it was. A sharp, steep learning curve, but I had great men and women there to help me. And, yeah, I think some of the skills I learned there, um, basically time organisation, particularly, and being quite disciplined, have really served me well <laughs> in my other jobs too. writing
1: thirteen books, yeah. <laughs> and And what inspired that jump from army boots to books?
0: <laughs> well, back in those days, you weren't really encouraged to stay in when you had children. And, um, I, after five years, you know, I became pregnant and oh, well, got married and became pregnant and, um, yeah, it, you weren't really encouraged to pursue both a career and motherhood. So right, I, yeah. I left the army and then I realized I really had, I wasn't qualified to do anything, you know, and, um, I, I also needed stimulation and I wanted, um, I guess to give my, you know, be inspiring and, and aspirational for my children too. so. I went back to university part time um, while the children were still little, and then um, my marriage broke apart, and so I continued to study and found that I loved it so much I never left and became an academic. Um, yeah, did did my degree, my honours, and then a PhD.
1: Yeah, wow! And your latest novel, novel number thirteen, is that correct?
0: That's right, Lucky Thirteen. I was actually born on Black Friday, Emma. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, and my mother always used to say it was the, un- the unluckiest day of the year when I was born.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <That's nice. laughs> Thanks, Mum. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, The Darkest Shore is it's an astonishing story set on the coast of Scotland in 1703, and your protagonist, Saoirse McIntyre, is returning home to the fishing village of Pittenweem along the wild east coast. What is it about this wild Scottish landscape that appealed to you?
0: I think for anyone who's been to scotland um it's hard not to be drawn into the landscape and the incredibly rich history and mythology of this country i mean i have a, i had a scottish grandmother and scottish step-grandparents too and i mean I, I still find the accent completely beguiling i'm a i'm a sucker for the the gaelic accents and um but going to scotland and and being in situ i'd already been there once before but i haven't been to that area and I actually um, was told by some friends here in Hobart who've travelled wi- wildly, widely, sorry, widely throughout <laughs> Scotland and wildly, they're, they're whiskey <laughs> you, so That's actually not an incorrect word. But, um, basically, about the fishwives, and um, they used to be called. Well, they were called herring lasses um, in the 1800s and the early 1900s, and they used to roam up and down not just the East Coast, other parts of Scotland too, and were absolutely essential to the fishing industry, which was one of the main um, imports and exports, if you like, of of the country. And I became quite fascinated by these women, but also by the term fishwife because Mm. it has such negative connotations in our day and age. You know, it's a derogatory term applied to a woman. The more I read about these herring lasses and the fishwives generally, I thought, but they were amazing. They were these bold, courageous, hardworking, defiant, sassy women. Mm. And, um, yeah, I just was quite taken with them. And then one of my friends that told me the story, Mark Nicholson, he said, you know that there are associated with witchcraft too, don't you? And after that I, I was lost. I just thought there's a story and I'm going to find it. And, I mean, we all sort of know about the witch hunts and the witch craze and the terrible, terrible things that happened to... Uh, women and men throughout um, the United Kingdom and also across Europe. And even like Salem is a very famous example too, what happened in Salem in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew about witchcraft and witches generally, but what I didn't expect when I actually traveled to Pittenweem and, and Anstruther and all the beautiful little villages along that east coast um, was the story I would find. And it's a story that's known but not well known. And I just mm-hmm. knew I had to tell it.
1: Yeah, I certainly hadn't heard of it prior to reading your book. Um, and you mentioned that term fishwife, which, as you say, is nowadays a derogatory term. What does it connote?
0: Now, I think someone who is a gossip, who's um, mean, vicious, loud, uh, has to have her own way and quite selfish. I think it's got a lot of negative connotations, argumentative particularly. And, right. um it was lovely to reclaim it, and um, yeah, and 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 like I didn't, I don't write about the herring lasses, which was a term that got applied later. I, I go back further in time to before they were these women were called herring lasses and were just fishwives.
1: Yeah, right, and it's rooted in that history in which you know sharp-minded, independent women were the target of superstitions um, of the town from the townsfolk and and the ecclesiastical authorities. Um, which certainly is the case for Saoirse in your story. I wonder if you can tell us a bit about how in Pit and Weem this suspicion spiralled into accusation and then persecution.
0: Sure. Well, the the story, um, Pit and Weem already had a history of uh, finding and burning witches and in the hundred years before my story set, I think and I may have this figure wrong, I can't really um, recover it from the top of my head, but it was something like a dozen women had been burned on a place called Kilgreen, uh, which is nearby, a field nearby. So it already was there, if you like, in the soil. Um, well, what ha- what happens in this particular instance is um, uh, a young blacksmith uh, gets into an argument with um, a friend of the fishwives, a well-known scold, if you like, in the village, but, but, but beloved too, and... She was so angry with him because he wouldn't give her uh, the nails that she'd ordered to repair part of her house that she erected or or made a charm against him. And without spoiling the story too much, uh, he responds to that charm. And what happens there sets in, um, sets up a series of events that are just so terrible and, and so hard to believe. What happens to a group of women then who become accused of witchcraft and get locked up and tried and, well, Mm -hmm. actually they don't really get tried, but they they undergo some terrible torture to extract confessions. And and it's just what happens. What happens to the village, it's not just the women, but what, what doing, you know, accusing these women and hunting down witches and looking for witches does to this little tiny close-knit village it you know it tears it apart
1: right and and you would know all too well the ways in which history famously falls short when it comes to recording the lives of women especially common women or women in trade I wonder if you came up against any roadblocks while you were doing your research
0: ah that's a wonderful question Emma I came up against so many you're exactly right you don't get the women's voices and um what I did find, like, there's been a book written about these events, and um, it, it's been researched, but um, not not terribly well. But but still, you know, it, it, it's it's still an excellent read. But what I did was I actually went into the parish records and the town records, and they're often contradictory, and um, they're also quite defensive. So you, you have um, always male voices telling you this story, and there are only a couple. That sort of defend the women and there was one man, two accused, but that, but I guess defend the accused and try to put forward their story and talk about it from um, a different point of view and so you have to really work hard and, and go, it's like um, being an archaeologist really and sifting mm. through all these narrative layers to get to some sort of idea of the truth, which of course we know is also a laden term too, but I like to think um, if I haven't exactly found the truth of the matter, I, I've... I have a truth.
1: <laughs> right. And is Saoirse, um is she based on a real-life person or is she sort of a composite character of the women and the victims of that time?
0: Yeah, she's a composite character definitely, but all the other women around her uh, existed. They, they were real. And I gleaned what I could from the bare bones that I could mm. gather and added flesh to them and gave them, you know, lives, loves, flaws, um, dialogue, of course, and friendships. Because one thing that was very apparent to me um, when reading about fishwives and there's some wonderful interviews that you can find on YouTube, believe it or not, from women now, you know, that are quite elderly but were fishwives um, during last century. Mm-hmm. And what what became so clear listening to them, and again, you know, accounts that I, I did read um, that were much later, of course, was the close-knit bonds that form between the fishwives but also within the fishing communities. And I think that's why what happened in Pitonwere and Weim particularly really broke my heart because it was a real effort to destroy the fabric of, of a you know a community that had done it really hard but nonetheless had survived
1: mm-hmm. and, and how they
0: survived this I don't know but they did
1: well yeah as you said that you were talking about the flaws and the bonds between these women and with that dynamic characterization of sortsha and the other fifth fish wives your book does, it reclaims that word, fishwife, and it gives voice and dimension to these women's stories. Why do you feel that it's so important we hear from those overlooked women of history?
0: Yeah, well, I think that you can't have an accurate idea of history if you've only got half the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, always we've, we've had um, men's view of history and we've read about the men in history and there's nothing wrong with that. That's fabulous. We get you know, a version, an idea, we have a sense of what occurred, but there's always been gaps and omissions and, and a huge chunk missing. And that's why I love, you know, what, what in the past has been called, I guess, revisionist history or feminist history, where they're reclaiming these lost voices. And it just gives such a richness and depth when you can examine what happened to both sexes and contrast, compare, but also find that we have much more in common. than than we do otherwise. And certainly people of um, particular classes had a lot more in common, if you like, than people of the same sex. So there's those interesting twists and turns that become apparent the more you read. And I think what you also find is that the trials and tribulations that um, women particularly, but also men of different classes um, endured, so little's changed, Emma, and it's really quite Mm. depressing. (laughs) Sometimes when, when you read that, it's that, um, I don't know how to say it in the French properly, but uh, plus cochon, you know, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And, that, that yeah, that's one thing I find too. And even with what happened to these women and how there was such concerted effort to silence them, to silence the truth, to paint them in these dark, terrible colours and make them out to be monsters Um, We still see that with powerful independent women, how how there is concerted effort by certain parties to silence them and you've got to ask why. What are people so afraid of if they allow these women a platform and a voice? And that was certainly the case in Pitt and Weem in the early 1700s.
1: Yeah, and are you conscious of those parallels between um, then and now as you're writing?
0: When I'm researching, I, I do see them, but I don't deliberately try and put them in the book, because I think part of being um, a writer of historical fiction, you have a responsibility to be true to the period and true to the history to a degree, because, of course, you still want to tell a really good story, you know. <laughs> um, but what I find is certainly once the first draft's complete and I'm going back over and I'm editing and editing and editing, I think, oh, my goodness, or then something crops up on the news, you know, and mm. I think, wow, what century am I living in? You know, is this the 1700s or the, or the 21st century? So, um Yeah, and i found that with every book I've written. And what I find remarkable about women in trade in particular is there's always this assumption that it's been men um, alone, I guess, that have upheld trades or passed them on through families and taught them. But, again, the more you drill down into history and seep through those layers, you find that women were absolutely integral and essential to trade. And I still found this um, with my book The Brewer's Tale, which, of course, was about a, a woman in brewing um, women were, were the ind- industry, in inverted commas, um, to start with. Women made the ale or the beer all the time and mm. um, and religious houses. And it wasn't till, as one historian Judith Bennett puts it, when a venture prospers, women fade from the scene. So it wasn't till it became a financially really viable industry with the introduction of certain technologies and hops and things like that, that women were pushed out
1: and... Mm-hmm. Um,
0: the book I'm writing at the moment, um, Weaving plays a big part in it and it was also true of Weaving that women were pushed out once it became really profitable and, and, and of course, later mechanised, you know.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you speak of wanting to, to honour the history and to honour these people and this place and you're one of many historical fiction writers who love to locate themselves geographically in the place that they're writing about. And as I understand it, you travelled to Scotland, as you were saying earlier, in 2017 with your husband and a couple of friends what were some of the most memorable moments from that trip?
0: Oh, gosh, um, apart from going in and out of all these numerous bars and stuff,
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, well,
0: two things, and one of them involves um, Pit and in that we went to the Fisheries Museum in the beautiful uh, village of Anstruther, or Anster, as it's called by the locals, and that's just literally a walk away from Pittenweem their neighbouring villages. There's about five or six along that area, and the Fisheries Museum is really well known, and it's wonderful. It gives you this fabulous history of, of the role that fishing and fishermen and fishwives played in the history of that area. And at the end of the... We just wandered through ourselves. We spent a few hours in there, and at the end I was interviewing one of the... Um, Managers there, and I said something about uh, witches. I said, So I believe that, you know, um, fishwives and witchcraft were quite closely intertwined. And he looked at me with such disgust and he said, In his beautiful brogue, which I can't do, what a load of rubbish, and I don't mm. know what you're talking about. And I remember I'd, I'd um, gathered a pile of books that I wanted to purchase from their bookshop. And I said, Well, if that's the case, why are you selling this book? And it was called The Weem Witch. And he said, he muttered something and he said, oh, um, a local wrote it, so I have to sell it. <laughs> and my husband said, because he didn't." Um, he and my friends weren't actually right beside me, they said they detected tone and they heard the last bit. And uh, apparently I turned to my husband and I had this big grin on my face and I said, oh, he's lying, there's witches here and we're going oh. to find them. And we did. So that's when we walked to Pit and and, yeah, we found um, not just witches but this amazing, amazing story.
1: Yeah, and, and this is quite unlike anything you've ever written before and you said possibly one of the hardest books that you've ever written. Why is that? Yes, I think
0: because in the past, whereas I've had real characters in my books like Sir Francis Walsingham or the diarist Samuel Pepys, um, the story itself was was a work of, of fiction, located in historical fact, of course, and, and with very real occurrences happening. But this time it was inversed. I had real people and a real event. And what I did was create two main fictional characters that became, I guess, the vehicle for telling this story. And I guess the reader identifies most closely with them and watches the narrative unfold through their eyes and um, yeah I felt like I had to really honour the the story, the real people and you always I think live in fear that somehow you've let them down and you just but but you don't want to let the reader down either so you have to tell also hopefully tell a good story and hope people are as moved by it as I was when I first encountered it and that I've I've done it justice. I guess that's what I'm trying to say so I feel a level of responsibility Mm. with this story that possibly I didn't with my others. And that's not to say, gosh, every writer wants their book to be loved and successful. We don't write for people to dislike our books. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is about, um, yeah, a, a re- very real awareness that this is these were real people and real events.
1: Right, so it's challenging on an emotional level and it sounds like challenging in terms of the craft and doing something that you hadn't or writing in a way that you hadn't written before. Did your process change in any way?
0: Yeah, first of all, can I just say that's a really beautiful way to put it and I wish I'd said that there, so thank you so much. <laughs> no, you know what? It didn't change the way I wrote and I think that's because, as I said, I had two primary fictional characters. So I had to, and because, too, in having said that, the real characters that I use, there's so little known about them. So I could just say I knew roughly um, I didn't know their ages, a lot of them. I just knew sometimes whether they were married or not. Um, I knew roughly where they lived in the town and I knew some of the words that they'd uttered in their own defence, or what they were accused of, and that was it. So I had to flesh them out. But mm. I always begin my stories with well, two things: a map and a timeline. So yes, I went there in situ, but and and you know breathed in the air and sort. But but it, that's pit and whim in the twenty first century. So then I had to take myself back. So I I get a map as close to representing what the township and the area would have been like at that time. And then I do a very, very accurate timeline. And the events in this book take place, I think it's the shortest time span I've had. It's a year and a bit. And um, so, you know, I was drilling down to weeks and days and months and just trying to get it all completely right. So in that sense, no, the craft didn't change. But yes, the emotional burden probably did.
1: Right. Yeah. And you're speaking of maps. And I think I read somewhere that your love of maps came from when you were an army officer. Is that right? Yeah,
0: pretty much. I I became fascinated by them and, and also, you know, the skills of early cartographers and um and geographers, they they fascinate me and um yeah, I love a good map. I have a I have quite a few in my house and on my walls and um some are very, very old too. And my husband gets most upset because a couple of times I've got a big one of Elizabeth in London and I've unrolled it on the floor and he's caught me crawling over it with a magnifying glass and <laughs> Yeah, I had a cadenza, but anyway.
1: Amazing. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> well, well, your book, it's an ode to uh, these fishwives and an ode more broadly to the women of history who are um, underrepresented. Um, and likewise, you dedicate the Darkest Shore to the many wicked women in your own life. Uh, what does it mean to be a wicked woman?
0: Well, the fishwives and, and, and I guess witches, people, women accused of witchcraft were not, you know, were often also termed wicked women. And, again, I wanted to reclaim that word because, to me, it has a lot more positive connotations because I'm afraid if you can be independent, bold, kind, loving, uh, honest, you know, and, and a great loyal friend and partner, then and, and that makes you wicked, well, yeah, I'm surrounded by wicked women and, and some men who love their women wicked. <laughs> and I wouldn't have it any other way. And that's something I learned too, I think, from reading about witchcraft. And, and I think I'd, I would have been friends or, or been accused probably of being a witch myself. I do have green eyes, so that, <laughs> that was one thing. Yeah.
1: And you are an independent, successful woman. Well,
0: yeah, I, I'm certainly independent. And, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and certainly successful. <laughs> uh, well, when you're not immersed in the archives or writing 400-plus page novels, what do you get up to? Ah.
0: Uh, I'm an avid reader. I review books um, a lot, and I'm—I have to say—I'm just totally blown away by the quality of the stories and the writing, and um, Australian writers particularly. Gosh, we can stand up and hold—you know—hold our heads high among on mm. the world stage. So, men and women, just fabulous, fabulous. I've read some wonderful books lately, but I also—I've um, oh, discovered Netflix and um, Amazon Prime <laughs> and all those things I don't know if I'm even allowed to say commercially those things but yeah so watching some other amazing visual narratives and just the mm. quality again of the writing and acting yeah I do that but I also I walk a lot um travel when possible I have three dogs and four cats uh, and, and a beautiful partner my husband <laughs> um yeah so we are and he has a brewery and distillery I probably yeah. should say that so when I'm not writing I'm, I'm helping him and our son's our distiller and um yeah, it's pretty much seven days a week. So if, you, if I'm not in front of my computer writing or on a chair reading or watching a great show, I can be found pouring a beer or mixing a cocktail.
1: Yeah. Uh, and what's your go-to tipple for when you're writing or dreaming up stories? Water. <laughs> I can't drink, Stay hydrated. Right? Yeah. I have
0: tried. I, have tried. I, I remember when um, I was an academic and teaching Hemingway and you read about his life and the amount of alcohol he used to down and then write these amazing stories. And I thought, yeah, I'll do that too. Oh, no, I didn't. I managed a great hangover and some gibberish. But yeah. um, <laughs> I can drink and write. I can have a drink after and in which case it's probably a gin and tonic or oh, I like my whiskey.
1: Right. When the work's done. Mm -hmm. And you were speaking about Aussie authors and Good Reading is a big champion of Aussie authors. And so are our readers. Which books have you read recently that you would recommend?
0: Oh, look, where do I begin? Um, well, I can't, it's hard to go past Trent Dalton and Boys Follows Universe. I, I I've known Trent for years and I'm just so proud of him and what he's accomplished with that beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, I love, um, Kate Forsyth's books and The Blue Rose is gorgeous mm-hmm. and Kim Wilkins and her fantastic um, fantasy trilogy that's just embedded again in, in Nordic myth and legend and that's, um, oh, what was the last one called? The There's Queens of the Sea was the book three. So Daughters of the Storm, Sisters of the Fire and Queens of the Sea, just sensational. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane Harper's books are um, right. Dervla McTiernan, uh, just fantastic. <laughs> oh, and I'm reading The Anchoress at the moment, which is that Jessie Blackadder? Just fantastic. No, <laughs> Robin Cole Sorry, got the wrong one, but <laughs> Jessie Blackadder's great too. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. so I'm reading that at the moment and really loving it.
1: Excellent. And you wrote in your acknowledgements that as a result of your trip to Scotland that many more stories have taken root. Is that a clue yes. about what's upcoming?
0: Well, yes. I haven't even spoken to my publisher about this yet, but I have an idea. I have <laughs> an idea about first. smuggling. Smuggling was huge in those days. Oh, and okay. the women played a bigger role in smuggling than I realised. So mm-hmm. that's all I'll say. And mm-hmm. it, might, it, might, it might involve whiskey too. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Very intriguing.
0: <laughs> At the moment I'm writing a book that's based on a character in one of my earlier books who I just fell in love with. And uh, it's called The Mostly True Story of the Wife of Bath. So Mm. um, people encounter the wife of Bath when she's in her 50s in the Brewer's Tower and she's the madam of a brothel in Southwark. So what I've done is using Geoffrey Chaucer's poem, of course, as the basis is I've taken her life from the age of 12 uh, through her five marriages and how she becomes the madam of a brothel in Southwark. And, you know, that again fascinates me because marriage was almost like a trade in in those days. This is in the 1300s, so I've gone way back in time. And, um, and of course, prostitution. And I'm looking at the fine line, I guess, between the two, marriage and prostitution, but also the fact that we only know the wife of Bath's story through um, Geoffrey Chaucer. He uses... Does he use her as a mouthpiece um, for his own misogynist views? Is it a feminist tract? What's he doing with it? So I thought she can be silent no more. So she is telling her own story rather than allowing a man to tell it for her.
1: Oh, fascinating.
0: Oh, I hope so. Thank you.
1: (laughs) And uh, Karen, I have one last very important question, and that's that I saw in your social media feed that you have a bit of a thing for novelty mugs. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes i i want to know what your favorite coffee cup phrase is
0: i oh i don't think i can say it it's got a naughty word uh, no go ahead can i yeah. okay it's staring right at me now i'm looking right at it now
1: yeah because it's
0: it's ironic you know it says i have a fucking beautiful way with words
1: oh that's so appropriate uh, it just, there you it just go.
0: tickled my sense of humour, and my stepmum was absolutely disgusted that I put that up on those <laughs> social media. Um, yeah. so I, I watched my mouth around my mum, my, my lovely mum. So, yeah. Oh, right.
1: <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> um, well, I think that that wraps things up quite nicely, actually. Uh, to our readers and listeners, you can get The Darkest Shore by Karen Brooks at the Goodreading website. Goodreadingmagazine.com.au, and of course, at all good bookstores. Karen, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Emma. It's been a pleasure.